the murder mystery podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? On the murder mystery podcast, it's The Parisian Contract. Episode 12. Richard walks to the kitchen area in the executive suite of Carlisle Banking, selects a decaffeinated cappuccino pod, and slots it into the machine that is set into the wall in front of him. Francine arrives one second later. How was Paris? he asks. Rushed, says the woman. Did you push us forward on Alpha? Dubois was rather non-committal, to be honest. Oh? Seems to have other matters on his mind, she says. His daughter, of course, says Richard, turning to her. Of course that, but he couldn't concentrate at all. They walk to Richard's office together. How's Olivia doing? he asks. You know her. What do you mean? She never seems that good to me, says Francine. I know you think differently. I do. She's one of the best. Don't see it. What did she say then? asks Richard. Seems obsessed with Hartford, the Glenthrow COO woman. I told her Malneath is the key. Is he? Hartford is just carrying out his strategy. Do we know that? says Richard. She's the COO. He's the CEO. I don't know Hartford, but Malneath seems a straight sort of chap from the research, says Richard. Maybe he was, says Francine. Do we need to do anything, or can we leave it to Olivia? You've known her for longer than I have, Richard, says Francine. Does she respond to pressure or freedom? She works best when she's given the space to deliver, Francine. She needs to follow guidelines, though. By guidelines you mean your instructions, he says, turning to her. At board level, I am responsible for the delivery of the Montgomery deal, says Francine. So my strategy is the one that those lower down the organisation need to follow, yes. There's no point having excellent people if you just want them to dumbly act out our views, he says. We're not the only ones with good ideas. Maybe some of the problems with Carlyle stem from that lack of direction, Richard. Lack of direction? He says, pulling his eyebrows together with concern. I'm the CEO of this organisation, and the success of Carlyle's has been built on hiring the most talented people in their field, and then letting those people bring their considerable skills to the delivery of our initiatives, not central command and control. That may have worked in the past, she says. Richard shakes his head. You disappoint me, Francine. You're better than this. I picked you out as someone who delivers, but not one who delivers in isolation of other people's contributions. Of course. I am not supporting a move to centralise control over Carlisle investment projects, says Richard. I have spent too long doing this and learning what works to throw it all away now. That's the end of it, Francine. Francine turns and walks back down the corridor to her office without another word. 
The lunch invitation from Guy arrives in Olivia's phone during her breakfast. She discovers her subconscious emotional reaction is a mix of pleasure and trepidation. They agree to meet in a café on the Boulevard Raspail, and she takes a table outside. He is wearing an open-neck shirt, tan trousers and sunglasses as he walks across the street when she sees him. She sees him first, and he doesn't see her. He is still fifty yards away. He takes out his phone and answers it. She has watched him before on his phone from a distance, after he met Grace outside Glenthrow's offices. This time, he is much calmer in his body language. He ends the call and walks towards her. Hi. Hi, she says, smiling. They kiss cheeks. How's it going? he asks. Good. They simultaneously sense a slight nervousness in each other. Did you order? he says. Only just got here. He raises his hand for a waiter, but none notice. He gets up and goes into the cafe to get menus. He hands one to Olivia on his return, and they read the choices. A private moment in a public environment. The waiter comes to them. They both order crepes and coffee. I was talking to Marianne the other day, says Olivia. Oh, yes. Care to tell me anything? He smiles. Like what? A conference last year? Oh, that, he says flatly. Olivia raises an eyebrow. One off, he says quietly, and Olivia laughs. Your life, Guy. I don't care what you do with it. What can I say? He flirts. I'm a handsome man. The ladies, you know. They laugh. She's fine with it, says Olivia. Same attitude as you. She's a nice girl, says Guy. I'm sure she's glad of your approval, says Olivia. He looks uncomfortable. Can we get off the subject of my past love life, he says, as the coffees arrive. I wanted to ask you, he looks up. I was interested in your background. My background? Yes, the foreign office, says the lawyer. Ten years, man and boy. Doing what exactly? All sorts, says Guy, without making eye contact. Such as? Is this an interrogation? Yes, she says without pause. Working in embassies, he says. A waiter arrives with the food. Doing what? says Olivia. Commerce, says Guy. Are you being deliberately curt? Yes, he replies. Because? You're a lawyer. I'm working for Montgomery, like you are, says Olivia. He thinks for a moment. Much of the commerce work I was involved with is confidential, he says. I know what that means. Do you? I can guess. That's not knowing, he says. She pauses to let the day seep into the space between them. Her weakness is to be too intense when she is on the scent. 
A group of diners arrive and push past their table, invading the intimacy. She breathes out, picks up her fork, and shifts in her seat. Guy is looking at her. You're unusual, he says. Thank you. I love originality. Her eyes flick up to his. You're not like the other lawyers I've worked with. What were they like? Easier to read. I've been perfecting my unreadability for many years, says Olivia. So it's obviously paying off. She smiles. What drives you? says Guy. That's easy. The truth. Digging it out from behind people's facades. What's your truth? he says. I'm certainly not going to tell you that after four days, she says. What makes you so tough? You can go on asking, Mr. Lanchester, but you won't get anywhere. He takes a bite of his food. Let's get back to the Foreign Office, she says. Are there any links to your past commerce activity and Montgomery? None, he says decisively. I wasn't in the British Embassy in Paris. Or Glenthre? asks Olivia. Same. What did you do, exactly? She says. Arrange deals? The British government invests in various projects across the globe, he says. My job was to make sure the investments were spent in a way that delivered what we wanted. What sort of investments? All sorts. Infrastructure, retail, administration. And the people you dealt with? Some of them were not all that kosher? I can't speak for them, he says. She acknowledges in her head the weakness of her own questioning. A judge would have reprimanded her for that looseness. The conversation takes a broader path, and they both avoid the sugar rush of personal questions. He has to go back to work, and they part, both feeling they have enjoyed being with the other. Olivia walks to the Montgomery offices, but takes a hot desk at the rear of the building, rather than going up to Jean-Luc's area. Her planning work needs updating, with the events of the past few days. She finds an empty meeting room with a whiteboard, uncaps a red pen, and starts to draw. She develops the relationships diagram from her notebook, and writes Jean-Luc in the centre of the board in a box with arrows to other boxes that contain the words Guy, Grace, Richard, Francine, and Max. Along each joining arrow, she writes the benefits of each relationship for the other party. Along the Jean-Luc to Guy arrow, she notes Jean-Luc trusts Guy to do his dirty work, and Guy needs JL for his hidden agenda. She records the events that have occurred and the questions that they have triggered. The photographs in flat three and their theft links senior players in Montgomery to Glenthrow and raises the question of collusion. David Malneath's death and the setting up of Max creates a thread that can only be explained by the fact that some sort of criminal element has got involved and that Max found something out that he has yet to tell her. 
The kidnap does appear to be isolated. Is it a straight piece of blackmail to retain Jean-Luc as a source of investment advice for the drug dealers? What Olivia does not know is whether the kidnappers and the killers of Malneath are distinct gangs or connected in some way. She is not a criminal lawyer. She doesn't know how to get information about gang operations, let alone try and build a case or solve that part of the puzzle. She writes, Dead End? on the board, in front of her. Her mind flicks through more events. She opens her laptop and refers to the notes that she made, which are not methodical enough, she now realises. She writes a new block of information. Francine and Grace. What does Francine want from the COO? What is Francine doing talking directly to Grace and denying it to Olivia and Richard? Why did Francine try to suppress Olivia talking to Grace, while all the while doing it herself? These are all unanswerable in her mind. Neither woman will talk to her openly, yet. Finally, Guy Lanchester. What is he up to? She feels her objectivity threatened when she's in his company. She can't let that happen. He's a suspect, and no chiselled features can alter that fact. There are too many dead ends piling up for her liking. No single route is the easy and obvious solution. She stands looking at the wall, going through the logic, tracing the relationships and the conclusions, then takes a picture of the diagram on her phone. Impressive. The voice comes from the open doorway. Olivia spins. Marianne, she says. You made me jump. Sorry, I saw you in here as I was passing. I was just playing, says Olivia. No, I, I get it. I get the chart. I agree with you. What do you agree with? asks the lawyer. Marianne moves into the room, letting the door autocloser do its work. Here, this section is the key to the whole thing, she says, pointing at the mass of arrows around the Jean-Luc and Grace Hartford boxes. Why's that? says Olivia. He knows her. Olivia waits for more, then asks, Have you seen them? She's been here, in the offices, says Marianne. Sometimes late, sometimes early, before I get in. How do you know? says Olivia. I just do. Sorry, not good enough. Unless you're a clairvoyant, I need more, says Olivia. Marianne looks at her, her thoughtful mind sketched out across the bone structure of her face. She bites the inside of her lip as she considers her next words. Okay, she says, but not here. Where? says Olivia. My flat is ten minutes away, says Marianne, nodding her head to one side. Great, let's go there. I'll go and get my bag, says Marianne, and she disappears through the door and into the office labyrinth. Olivia wipes the whiteboard clean, packs up and walks to the reception. Two minutes later, they emerge from the entrance into the street, and the noise of the traffic hits their ears. 
Somewhere in the distance, there's the sound of a police car siren. Marianne leads at pace, and Olivia stays close by. They walk silently for two blocks along the boulevard and into a side street. The police siren gets louder. They are fifty feet into the side street when a police car turns the corner behind them, the siren now bouncing around the tall sandstone buildings either side of the road. It sounds like two sirens to the women. Then they realise it is two sirens, and a second car turns the corner ahead of them and heads towards the first police car, one behind, one in front. The lights flash on their faces. The cars stop. Three gendarmes get out and approach Olivia. Mademoiselle Olivia Street, says one. Yes, she says with suspicion. I must ask you to come with us. About what? That will be explained, says the policeman. Where are you taking me? Rue de Saucer, mademoiselle. They bundle her into one of the cars and drive off at speed, leaving Marianne alone and open-mouthed, standing in the middle of the road, watching them drive away. Olivia sits in one of the dozens of interview rooms in the police headquarters. She knows she is being watched through the camera in the corner. She waits. If they hadn't taken her laptop and phone, she would be trying to find background on what this was about. After an hour, Captain Ferreau walks in, complete with his usual huge paper file under one arm. Mademoiselle, he says by way of greeting. Capitaine, she replies. Her legal training stops her from getting enraged from the lack of information she has been given. Ferreau takes too long to settle, puts down the file, gets water from the machine outside, takes off his jacket, and sits noisily on the other side of the table before opening the file and reading the top sheet of paper. Have you seen or been in touch with your brother in the last twenty-four hours? He begins. I haven't. Her coolness is pervasive. Have you had any conversations or communications with anyone about your brother Christophe in the last twenty-four hours? Again, no, Captain. Have you... All right, Captain Foucault. Firstly, tell me what this is about. Has Chris done something? Escaped, says the policeman. Escaped? She echoes. Just so, mademoiselle. From custody, she says. We, oui, in Madrid. When? Last night, says Ferreau. How? I can't tell you that. Because, says Olivia, because I need to establish that you weren't involved, he says slowly. She stops and blinks, working out her position. I have been in Paris the whole time, she says. Yes, we know that already. They know that already, she thinks. They've been watching her. I have had no contact, she says calmly. I can show you my emails and phone messages if you like. 
We've already looked at them, mademoiselle. Am I under arrest? She asks. That is personal data, and unless you have arrested me, you can't just look at it. The captain holds out both hands in peace. We found nothing, he says. Olivia frowns. I don't understand, then, she says. We did suspect that you might be involved, but as I said, there is no evidence on your computer or telephone. Our technical department also confirmed that nothing has been deleted recently on those devices. So I'm free to go, she says. You were not arrested, mademoiselle, says the policeman. I need my laptop and phone. Of course, they'll be in reception. She stands up. One thing, mademoiselle Street, he says. She looks down at him as he gathers his things together. Christophe attacked a guard, says Faroe. Oh, my God! Are they injured? In hospital. How bad are they? Bad, says the policeman. Another crime on his file, then, she says, as her heart aches for his memory. If he conducts you, says Faroe, please let us know immediately. Of course, Captain. He's considered to be a dangerous man on the run, he says. She can feel emotion in her face, but doesn't want to accept that she feels anything for Chris any more. Ferrol leads her to the lifts and he says his goodbyes. Olivia can feel her eyes water as she descends. She collects her equipment from the reception, walks out into the street and hails a cab back to her hotel. She keeps it together until she is safely back in her room. Then she cries for her brother, his life, and the damage and the loss, and how she can't stop feeling that she has some responsibility for him. Then she sleeps. Her phone wakes her. It is dark outside, and she scrabbles for the machine. The light of the device floods her face and she answers the call. Hi, Olivia, it's Marianne. Oh, hi, she says. I was wondering if you were all right. Yeah, I'm okay. Were you arrested? says Marianne. No, long story, says Olivia. Actually, where are you right now? In my flat. Do you fancy a drink? Sure. Can you come to my hotel? says Olivia. I'll be in the bar on the ground floor. Okay, see you soon. Olivia changes and goes downstairs. She is feeling fragile, and the daiquiri goes down too quickly, so she orders another before Marianne arrives. The young Frenchwoman is wearing a sky-blue miniskirt and a white blouse. Olivia wonders if there's something in French female jeans that make them understand understated style from the day they're born. They talk about Christopher and the whole backstory of his woes. Marianne has a brother too, but he's in finance and the polar opposite of Olivia's sibling. What about your parents? says Olivia. My father was killed. The young woman looks down at her red wine. I'm sorry, says Olivia. 
Three years now. Is your mother in Paris? Lyon. How often do you see her? When I can, she's lost without papa, to be honest. It broke her heart. So sad, says Olivia, putting her hand on Marianne's for comfort. I don't like to go back down there much, says Marianne. Too many memories. Olivia wants to change the subject. What about boyfriends? She says. I've seen a couple of guys this year, says Marianne. I had a big relationship through university, and it lasted for a year afterwards. I thought he was the one. You can never tell, says Olivia. Marianne shakes her head. What about you? My boyfriend is. Let me think, says Olivia. She smiles. Jack's not really very important to me. She turns her eyes to the French woman. You don't seem to mind. It's not how I live my life, really, she says. I've learnt not to care too much. You were hurt in the past? Too many times. But you can't live in isolation, says Marianne. I'm happy enough. Marianne raises her glass. To being happy enough, she says. They chink glasses. I wanted to tell you something, says Marianne. I said that there was something I had to say, but it would be a couple of days. You did. Now's the time. She pauses. They both take in the moment before something changes. The moment the guns stop firing across no man's land. The moment of calm before the storm. I was the whistleblower, says Marianne decisively. About Jean Luc's embezzlement? Oui. And he doesn't know, says Olivia. No, he doesn't. Why did you do it? It was wrong, says the young woman. Ambition is one thing, but there are rules. We should keep to them. Very honourable, says Olivia quietly. It's the only way. Winning by breaking the rules isn't winning. Why didn't you want to tell me this before now? says Olivia. I'm still watching him. Is he still involved with underhand activities? If he is, I'll catch him, says Marianne. I owe it to my family. Your family? says Olivia. Well, you know, I was brought up to play fairly, says Marianne. Then her face reddens, and she takes a swig of her wine.